All right, good evening, everyone. I'm glad you could make it here on Good Friday. I just want to pray for us as we jump into the scripture together. And we'll be in John um, chapter 19, continuing our series through on the book of John. So, Father God, I just thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. I just pray that as we open up your word tonight, God, that your Holy Spirit would enlighten to us of who you truly are, God, of what you've done on the cross, Lord, what you've done in reconciling us back to you, Lord. And I just pray that Good Friday and Easter, something we celebrate every year, Lord, wouldn't become mundane in us going through the motions, but we would realize this is the most powerful moment um, in human history, Lord, of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross and through your resurrection, God. So we just pray that you'd um, change our lives today. Father, it wouldn't just be in our heads, Lord, but it would move us um, to love in the same way that you've loved us, God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, so if you guys want to open to John chapter 19. You know, I always think Good Friday is kind of an interesting name for Jesus' crucifixion and for what transpired. And we're going to read through the crucifixion account in John chapter 19. Well, what I want to focus in on today, and I hope can grab each one of our attentions, is why is Good Friday good? And really, what was the purpose of the cross? Ultimately, the purpose of the cross is to reconcile us to God. But we heard this last week when Pastor John preached out of John 17, 3. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, that you are the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And I believe there's no event in the entire Bible or the history of mankind for that matter that shows us the character and the nature of God like the cross does. Nothing shows us a well-rounded picture of who God really is than what happened on the cross. And I think a lot of times, at least I know I was guilty of this for the majority of my life, is I think of the cross and I think maybe of Easter and we can kind of mull over it. We kind of know already what happened to the cross. We know that Jesus rose from the dead and we want to get to kind of the more exciting parts of the Bible. But what I want to challenge and encourage us today is that I believe the truth of what happened on the cross is really what can set us free. And just lately, I've had so many conversations with people who have experienced immense suffering and pain in their life. I know each one of us here has experienced a different degree of pain. Some people have experienced more than others and things that have been unexpected and caused immense suffering in our life. And if you've gone through these things, you know how that can impair your judgment. Um, it can impair how you react to other people and even how you view God. I believe with so many people, because of the inability to cope with pain and the inability to cope with suffering, not only are we swallowed up with our own uh, sorrows, but we are swallowed up by our own bad decisions, by sin, and ultimately by bitterness. What I want to see and look at here is that the love of Christ that's demonstrated on the cross is really the only power. It's the only power, not a power, but the only power that can free you from your own suffering, from your pain, from your bitterness, and ultimately from your sin. It's not a option, but it is the only option. And we look at who was suffering on the cross, I think that really matters. You know, if you, if you see someone suffering, maybe you feel like they deserve it. You don't feel quite as bad for them or they're suffering a long prison sentence or whatever it is. But for each one of us, when we see a child suffer, there's a part of us that has that injustice come up because they can't defend themselves, that they're innocent, um, that they don't know much of the world. And because of that, our heart reacts differently when we see a child suffer or maybe um, a hero in your favorite movie. Whenever I think of the gospel, the movie that comes to mind for me, um, for some reason, is Braveheart. I don't know if you guys have seen Braveheart, but William Wallace at the end, you know, crying out freedom as he's being tortured of the hero who's laid down his life for all these people, but yet he's the one who's suffering at the end. 
And Jesus, who deserved all honor and praise and rewards, the one who literally created the, the world. Colossians said that the world was made through Jesus Christ. The one who the Bible says God is love and Jesus is God in the flesh. So Jesus is the very picture of what love even is. And this God, this man who came to love us is ultimately the one who is suffering. So I want us to keep in mind as we're reading John 19, this isn't just a rehash of what happened to Jesus on Good Friday, but that each one of us would have a revelation of who God truly is by why the cross was necessary and what Jesus Christ really went through. So John chapter 19, verse one, it says, so then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said to him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, you take him and you crucify him, for I find no fault in him. And the Jews answered him and said, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the son of God. First thing that we read here is Jesus was scourged. And I know maybe some of you have seen the passion of the Christ, but when a non-Roman um, citizen was scourged, it was a whip that had whether it was bones or metal or basically shrapnel that was on the edge of this whip, that when it would hit, when it would whip and hit on um, the back of the prisoner or the person being tortured, that it would literally pull the skin um, off their back. And after 39 of these that Jesus took, that often people would even die from the scourging before they were even crucified, but oftentimes you could see the bone, that you could see um, the muscle, the tissue that would have been coming off of Jesus as he was scourged. The next thing it says, they put a crown of thorns on his head. And for some reason growing up, I always pictured like, you know, the little sandbirds you have, maybe like they made a crown of sandbirds and put it on his head. But these thorns um, of the plant, of the palm they used could actually grow up to 12 inches long is how long these thorns um, could be. Now it doesn't say exactly how long the thorns were that were put on Jesus' head, but this wasn't a small thing. And in order to get it to stay, they beat this uh, crown of thorns in his head. Next, it says they gave him a purple robe, something that displayed royalty. And all of this was to mock him, that you say you're the king of the Jews, you say you're the son of God, you say that you were going to destroy the temple and build it up in three days. Well, we're going to whip you and we're going to treat you like a king with a fake crown that causes suffering. And we're going to give you this purple robe. And really, I believe um, Pilate's hope in this was he would beat Jesus so bad that the Jews would maybe have a little bit of empathy and think, well... Maybe we don't actually need to crucify him. So they present, he presents him and say, here's the man, here's Jesus. And he doesn't see any reason to crucify him. But yet the Jews all together cry out and ask for Jesus to be crucified. And one thing that I think is so important for each one of us when we view the cross, it can seem like the Jews were so hard-headed. But why were they hard-headed? because they were blinded by their own sin, right? Their own sin, their own darkness had kept them from seeing God in the flesh right in front of them. And I believe that before we can see the cross as something done for us, we really have to take it personal and see the cross was something done by us. That each one of us took part in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And if we don't take that sin personally, that my sin, 
is what crucified Christ, that I don't believe the payment and the power of what Christ has done can really take effect in each one of our lives. We have to realize we are, whether it's Pilate, the one who doesn't, we don't want to crucify Jesus, but we won't do enough to stop it, or we're the Jews yelling for him to be crucified, that each one of us has taken part in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But in return, Jesus has given us unconditional love. If we keep reading in John 19, verse 8, it says, Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was even more afraid, and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? And keep in mind, Jesus is beaten to a pulp at this point, And this is what comes out of his mouth. Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in the place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. What I find interesting in this is there's people like the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees who are stirring up the crowd to crucify Jesus. There's the crowd who's being stirred up to crucify Jesus. And then there's Pilate who doesn't want to crucify Jesus. And then there's Jesus, right? So we've got kind of four different parties And the only person that has peace out of these four groups is who? The man being crucified. And why is that? Because he had an undying faith and surrender to the sovereignty and to the plan of God. Jesus had already, I believe Jesus already died before he went to the cross. That when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane and he was praying to God, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. Jesus was born to die. He knew his sole purpose was ultimately to die for the sins of the world. And at this moment, there's only one person who has peace. And it's the man who should be the most afraid, the man being crucified. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches to the same people who crucified Jesus. And he says this in Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 24. You can turn there, it'll be on your screen. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and the foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Think what's so powerful about Jesus's ministry and of his life is when you look at the things that were happening around him, it doesn't seem like anything's necessarily going to plan. But yet as Jesus is going through the most immense suffering that any human could ever experience, he he was at peace. 
And the question for you and I is what holds us back from peace in our own life when we're going through trials and we're going through suffering? Because in a similar way, God has given us a promise that he says in Romans 8, that all things work for the good, for what? For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That when we can surrender, that whether something is good or bad that happens in my life, God can truly use this for his glory we're, um, Pastor John said this last week, we're unoffendable. We're always at peace because we know no matter what's coming our way, all we have to do is obey. And that's all Jesus was focused on is all I have to do is carry out my mission to the Father. And for each one of us, I think we really need to also recognize that if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, something that God calls us to do is the act of baptism, which is the representation of being crucified with Jesus. That we have the same call in our life to even to the point of death, even the point of dying on a cross, that we too could be at total peace with the sovereign plan of God to advance his kingdom. That our life isn't about our comfort, but our life is ultimately about him. Because we say it all the time, we want to be like Jesus. A lot of times we say that because we want to be nice to people, we want to encourage people. But being like Jesus is also going through suffering, going through ridicule, going through mockings, being misunderstood, being hated but yet showing unconditional love and loyalty to God. And ultimately, Jesus did this all out of love. And when we see how angry, man, how angry and blinded the Jews were, one thing about the Jews, and if you've been in our Romans class, I'm sure this has been addressed, but the Jews thought pretty highly of themselves. They thought, we are the people of God. We've been chosen by God to represent him to the world. The first thing that has to happen to us in order to receive the gospel is we have to be humbled. We have to be humbled before God. And humble before God doesn't mean you think you can do some good things and some bad things. Being humble before God means you can't do anything. You recognize I can't do anything that can please God apart from the power of God and apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not I can do some things, but I can do nothing unless the power of the gospel, unless Jesus Christ saves my life, changes my heart, then I can obey him. But until we reach that point, we will be just as blind as the Jews to the son of God. Because I believe if Jesus came today, the same thing would happen to him. Now, maybe there'd be a few more people on his side because of what we have in the Bible, but the world would hate Jesus just as much today as they hated him then. And the question is, would we recognize him or will we be just as blind to him today as they were then? Romans 3.10 says this, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There are no, none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've all together become unprofitable. There's none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed, um, swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known and there's no fear of God before their eyes. I think it's unbelievable, but at the end of that section of John, what do the Jews say? We have no king but Caesar. There's no fear of God. There's no fear of God in their eyes. Over and over in the Old Testament, God warned Israel, you guys don't need a king. All you need is me. But here we, we have God in the flesh right in front of Israel, and instead of the Jews recognizing Jesus for who he is, they're saying we have no king, we only have Caesar. That there's no fear of God. In their eyes. And who did Jesus die for? He died for that list that we just read. See, every single one of us fits in that list, whether we want to recognize it or admit it or not. That each one of us, at one point or another, had no fear of God in our eyes. We chose to obey our own desires and our own passions 
over what God had laid out for our life. But in the midst of it, Jesus continued to pour out his love and his patience for mankind. And it gets better because Jesus continues to witness even to the point of his death. Turn back with me to John chapter 17. Verse 17. Oh, sorry. I say John 17. John 19, verse 17. We're not, we're not switching chapters here. John 17 is online if you missed the sermon last week. But we're in 19 today. John 19, verse 17. It says, And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. God using a pagan king to declare who Jesus really was. Verse 23, it says, And the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Now, what's amazing to me during this time is how many pieces of scripture Jesus is literally fulfilling as he's being crucified. And why that's important is because these Jews knew the Bible. They knew the Bible, especially the Old Testament, way better than we do. Some of these Pharisees had literally the majority of the Old Testament memorized. That they knew this front to back, but literally these, these truths are being fulfilled word for word and they can't see it. And why is Jesus doing this? Partially because it's just the word of God that he's fulfilling. But the second part of it was to be a witness that there was still an opportunity for these Jews to realize I made a mistake. I've been saying crucify him, crucify him. And all of a sudden Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and these chapters of the Bible are unfolding right in front of me. And I still have a chance to repent. We're gonna see there actually are a couple people who do that in the midst of this. But I wanna look at two of these scriptures so we would get a picture of, to me, how obvious this is. And again, it's easy for me to say, maybe in hindsight, but to look at how specifically Jesus was fulfilling these um, passages of scripture from the Old Testament as he's flogged, as he's mocked, as he's ridiculed, as he's betrayed, as he's been forsaken by his friends. Because Jesus didn't just suffer um, emotionally or physically, but Jesus suffered emotionally. His best friends were not there. John was there with his mom. And a few other, that's who you can count on being there is your mom will be there. Um, but he didn't, he didn't have any of his friends. None of his guys that said a day earlier, Jesus will die for you. None of them are there. And how many of us have been disappointed by people who said they'd be there for us? People who should have been there for us, but they weren't. And Jesus didn't have any time to have a pity party, but yet he continued in love and he continued to fulfill what God had called him to do. So Isaiah 53 Um, We're going to start at, and right before this in in verse um, 13 and 14 of 52, it says, Jesus was beaten beyond human recognition, that he was unrecognizable on the cross. Isaiah 53, 1, it says, Who has believed our report? 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form of comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and he is rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him, and he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All of us, every one of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned aside, every one, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shear is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had no, done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. That so much of this specific um, torture, which at this point when Isaiah had written this, crucifixion wasn't a thing. So he wasn't just writing a picture of crucifixion, but this was something that was inspired by God. Not only was the crucifixion true, but Jesus died with the wicked and ultimately was buried with the rich, that he was buried in a rich man's tomb at his death. And all these things are being fulfilled um, right in front of the Jews' eyes, but yet they can't see it. In Psalm 22, I want to look at another section of scripture that's really my favorite. Um, I think Good Friday passage, Psalm 22 no, I always give homework when I preach, so this is the homework. I didn't write it out. You gotta read Psalm 22 um, and see not just the fulfillment of Christ's death in the first half, but see the fulfillment of Christ's resurrection in the second. It's a pretty powerful study. Psalm 22, verse one, a phrase that we've all heard, says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Now, as we read this, just think, I mean, this is how Christ felt on the cross. It's hard to really imagine, you know, what does it, what would it feel like to be crucified? And not only what would it feel like to be crucified, but what would it really be like to have the sin of the world on you? And this is what it would be like. Verse two, he says, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And the night seasons, and I'm not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of man and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusts the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth from my mother's womb. You have been my God. But not far from me, for trouble is near, but for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan. They have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones, and they look and stare at me. 
They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That I believe part of what Jesus was doing when he cried out, it's not in um, the gospel account of John, but when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe he was pointing Israel back to the scripture. That not only had Jesus suffered the wrath of God, not only was he feeling separated from God because he had become sin on the cross, but I think this was another call to Israel to repent. Hey guys, my God, my God, why have you not forsaken me? Going, pointing them back to the scripture that they could see that David wasn't the ultimate fulfillment, but ultimately the son of David, Jesus Christ would be the fulfillment of Psalm 22 because the rest of the scripture talks about the resurrected savior, talks about the, the king, the son of David that would proclaim to his brothers the goodness of God, that Jesus, I believe, was trying to tell him it's not gonna end here, just like it didn't end there for David. There was a time of suffering for David, but it came later with a time of restoration, just as Jesus was saying, I'm suffering now, I feel separated from God now, but I'm trusting in the promises of God. Even though Jesus may have felt separated from God, he knew he ultimately wasn't because the promises of God is what would resurrect him on the last day. In the midst of all this, another famous statement that Jesus cries out is, Father, forgive them, right? For they know not what they do. But they should have known. They should have known what they were doing because they were masters at studying the Bible. These people, if anyone, should have known what they were doing. But yet Jesus, in the midst of it, forgave them and overlooked their ignorance, even though ignorance wasn't an excuse. How many times have you said that, especially if you're a parent to your kid? You knew better. You knew better than that. These people, they knew better. But yet in the midst of it, Jesus was praying for them. And there's one story that I love um, that I think sometimes gets breezed over a little bit is the uh, thief on the cross. And we can kind of talk about, we can use this example when someone's dying at their deathbed. If they just pray like the thief on the cross did, they'll be saved. I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong, but I believe it's much deeper than that of what happens with the thief on the cross. There's two accounts in the other Synoptic Gospels. One that says both thieves actually mocked Jesus. It records as both of them mocked him. But then we know this one thief by the end says, defends Jesus to the other, other thief and asks Jesus, will you remember me when you enter into your kingdom? I don't believe those accounts contradict. I think it's the same thief. I think something happened between the beginning of the, the crucifixion to the end that changed this thief's mind on who Jesus Christ was. And I think that happened for two reasons. One, I think it's because the sovereign grace of God. I think in order for us to understand who Jesus is, God has to work on our heart and help us realize that Jesus is the cross. So I believe that God was working on this guy's heart because when you're dying of crucifixion, which ultimately comes from suffocation, you're probably not having your deepest spiritual revelation of all time as you're dying there on the cross. That that's not something when you're in that deep of pain, you're probably gonna do. I know for women, um, childbearing, think about when you're in the middle of childbirth, you're probably not thinking of like what you learned in Psalms yesterday as you're studying Psalm 22. It's probably not what's going through your mind because uh, pain blinds you. And I know for me, it was my kidney stone. I wasn't thinking of my deepest, darkest uh, spiritual revelations as I was having a kidney stone. I was just trying to survive. But this guy is on the cross, he is dying, and all signs are pointing to Jesus being condemned. There's no circumstantial change that would make this guy think, you know, I think he's a criminal, but now it's obvious that he's actually the Messiah that's going to restore the world and bring God's kingdom to Israel, and it's all going to be good. 
There was no circumstantial evidence that Jesus was the Christ to him at that point. But I believe that, you know, many men have died, but nobody died like Jesus died. Nobody had the peace that Jesus had as he was crucified. Nobody had the love for their enemies the way Jesus had a love for his enemies at that moment on the cross. And there was something in this Jewish thief that believed in that moment that Jesus was the Christ. And to be honest, I think this is the greatest for me. This is the greatest act of faith for me in the entire Bible from any individual. Because I believe that this guy, they didn't crucify Romans, so this guy was a Jew. And for him to say, Jesus, you know, I'm believing that you're the Messiah, you're the king, and that you would remember me when you go to your kingdom, what he's proclaiming is really one of two things. Either he believes that Jesus at that moment is gonna get off the cross, that somehow God was gonna get him off that cross and he was going to lead Israel to freedom and to victory, or he believed that somehow God was gonna raise him from the dead. Now, this guy wasn't his disciple. He didn't hear all the teachings the disciples were getting and they weren't there. This guy just had a a very small glimpse of who Jesus Christ was, but there was something in him through the spirit of God that believed that this isn't gonna end here for this guy. And what would make the thief on the cross believe that the guy being crucified next to him was gonna be the Messiah prophesied of in the scripture? Unless one, he knew the scriptures and all of a sudden it clicked. Or two, it was just the grace of God that ultimately revealed to this guy, Jesus is the king of the Jews. And why this is so important to me is because the thief on the cross isn't a picture to me of saying a prayer last minute. What the thief on the cross is a picture of is someone who is bitter, is someone who is angry, is someone who'd live a life of sin. And at the last moment, the grace of God and the demonstration of the love of Jesus Christ broke this guy's heart enough that he was able to believe the guy being crucified next to him was the savior of the world. To me, that's, that's a miracle. There's no way someone would come to that conclusion on their own unless it was a sovereign act of God. That each one of us, when circumstances would say otherwise, when terrible, terrible things happen in this life, things don't always work out good for us because we're Christians or because you believe in God. And when everything around us shows us God doesn't exist or God doesn't love you, what do we come back to? Do we come back to the scriptures and the demonstration of Jesus Christ on the cross or do we come back to maybe just how God has blessed me lately or ultimately how I'm feeling? I want to finish this last section in John chapter 19, verse 28. I didn't read 25. I'm going to go back up to verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Women, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. And again, something, I know the physical crucifixion of Christ was immensely painful, but Jesus was a man. Jesus was fully God and he was fully man. And Jesus on that cross had to watch his mom suffer in confusion. I mean, to me, that's a powerful thing. Nobody wants to see their loved ones suffer. But in every single aspect, whether it was betrayal from friends, whether it was physical punishment, whether it was false accusations, 
every single thing you could ever go through was coming at Jesus at the same exact time. And this is why we can be confident when the Bible says greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world because everything you could possibly face and worse on this, in this lifetime, Jesus Christ faced and overcame. And he promises for anyone who would trust in his name that he would live inside of you. And because he's in you and because he's in us, we can overcome not only our own sin, but any type and trial of suffering that comes our way. And in verse 28, he says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it on his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. In Romans chapter 3, I really like this scripture. He says that through Christ's death, that God could both be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And this is where I think the, and this phrase, it is finished, is so important because in this phrase, we're seeing two different, I don't want to say two different sides, but two different attributes of God. We're seeing his absolute love for righteousness and his love for humankind. And we're also seeing his hatred for sin and his holiness that cannot compromise. And if you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53, we see that someone needed to pay for our sins. And we read the beginning part of this chapter. But nowhere in the Bible that I can find does it say the wages of sin is crucifixion. Right? The wages of sin is death. And what does the Bible say for those who die in their sins apart from Jesus Christ? It's eternal torment that their soul is tormented eternally because they cannot make a payment for their sin. In Isaiah 53, verse 10, it says, yet it pleased the Lord, it pleased the Father to bruise him. Some versions say to crush him, meaning Jesus. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. See, not only did Jesus' body have to go through immense um, suffering for the payment of our sins, but it says his soul was made a sacrifice, was made an offering on behalf of you and me. And I think of, um, if you had me, I'm, I'm a pretty little guy, if you had me and you had a, super big power lifter, like he's the best in the world, right? And we're both standing up here. And you put um, a, a barbell on both of our backs. And you put, you know, one plate, 45 pounds each. You put it on each one of our backs. I'm doing okay with 135 pounds. I can still, I can still do that. I haven't squatted too much lately, but I, can, I think I can handle 130 pounds. If you put another plate, it's getting a little heavier. Put another plate, it's getting a little heavier. You get to four or five plates, I'm going down. I'm not gonna be standing here anymore. I'm gonna fall. And the same way, this power lifter standing there, five plates, six plates, seven plates, I don't know how many plates he can handle, but they're just piling on. He's standing there strong, unmovable. And the thing we have to realize with Jesus Christ is he didn't just die for your sins. He didn't just die for the sins of one man. He died for the sins of the world. That the entire weight of the sin of humanity, from Adam to the very end of time, every single person who would put their faith in Jesus Christ, that weight was being pushed on Jesus, one plate, 
one plate, one plate at a time. And can you imagine that? I know for me, if I'm stuck in my own sin, the guilt and the pain that I experience from my own sin can almost be unbearable. But you add that of thousands and thousands and millions and, and billions of people who have lived on this planet that Jesus Christ bore the sin of the entire world, not just physically, but his soul was made an offering for our sin. And I believe in those three hours of Christ's crucifixion, he suffered more in those three hours than any single person would ever suffer in hell because he was paying for more than one person's sin. But yet he was paying specifically, knowing every single sin you and I would commit. And because he loved us before the foundation of the world, he knew he would do this, that he went, he went through with it. At any time, when Pilate says, don't you know I have authority over you? At any time, Jesus could have snapped his fingers and the angels could have came down. He could have showed them who was king. They could have slaughtered everybody if they wanted to, but he didn't. That he held his tongue and in patience and long suffering because he loved you and because he loved me, because he wanted us to know him. He was able to do this. And not only was Jesus willing to suffer as a son of God, but God was willing to crush his own son. I have a son now, he's only two and a half. I don't want to crush him. I don't want to see him bruised. But yet by God's love for us and his hatred of sin and his inability to reconcile with sin, he wanted a relationship with you and I so bad that he was willing to crush his own son on the cross that we might know him. If you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I think is the best scripture that... um, explains this concept. Second Corinthians five twenty one. It says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I use this story a lot, but it's it's an impactful one and um It's in the Bible, so I think I can say it a lot. But um, Jesus, when he's in the garden, he's sweating blood and he's asking God, he says, my God, my God. Um, Or he says, God, if if it be your will, take this cup um, from me. Now, I always have found that interesting because if you've studied church history at all, um, many of the apostles and early Christians were crucified for their faith. And Rome had brought such an intense uh, persecution on the church at one point that they were literally lining up Christians at night along the road, crucifying them and lighting them on fire um, to light the streets of Rome in order to, to put out the movement of Christianity. And it's recorded all over in church history. These people were singing hymns on their way to being crucified. They were excited to die and to be martyred for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So why is Jesus in the garden sweating blood? That, and science will tell you that's actually a real response to very, very intense anxiety, fight or flight, is your body can start to sweat blood or ooze out blood from your ears, from your nose, or from your pores. And I believe it's because of 2 Corinthians 5.21 that Jesus was not afraid of the Romans, but he knew on that cross he was going to become sin. It wasn't like sin, but he was going to become sin. Our sin was going to be imputed to Christ, put on Christ, so that his righteousness could then be put on us. That in order for Jesus to save us, he couldn't save himself. That he had to become sin in order for us to become the righteousness of God. And I believe Jesus is the only person that has ever known how evil and how wicked and how gross sin really is. We think we know, but we have no idea how 
just destructive sin is and how much, how detestable sin really is to God. But Jesus knew and he knew he was gonna become that. Why? Because he loved us. The nails didn't hold Jesus on the cross. Nails can't hold God down. That, that the love that Jesus had for you and the love that Jesus had for the father is what kept him on the cross. And not only did Jesus know the wickedness of sin, but I think Jesus is the only person to ever know how terrible the wrath of God on sin really is. I I just don't think we have a concept of what that really means to stand before God as an unrighteous and unholy person without any power to save ourselves. But yet Jesus offered himself up willingly out of love so that he could take the payment that you deserve. That's why God can be just and that that full payment, not part of your payment, but the full payment, so you're not saved by works, but you're saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. The full payment when Jesus said it is finished, it was truly finished. That he is just in doing so, but he's also the justifier that he brings many to salvation. And in John chapter 19, we'll close with the end of this chapter. There actually was more, one more section. John 19, verse 32. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Zechariah 12.10 talks about this scripture. The whole world will see him whom they've pierced. Each one of us pierced Christ with our own sin. And that Pilate, who had the power to judge or not judge Christ, one day, Christ will be on the judgment seat and he will be the one standing before Christ, being judged. And each one of us, the same thing. We will stand before Christ either with his righteousness or, with, or without it. And the thing that I just, I've been praying for our church, for anyone this Easter season who hears the gospel, has this love that Jesus Christ displayed, has that really sunk into your life? Because this love is the only thing that can conquer the pain, that can conquer the suffering, that can conquer the bitterness, that can conquer the sin in our life. It can't be trying hard. It can't be going to church. It can't be being religious. It can't be reading your Bible more. But it comes to grips with the fact that Jesus Christ really loves you and he really accepts you despite your sin, despite your rejection, despite your part that you played in his crucifixion. And when we receive that love, it's not something that we can just go about our day and think, well, glad I got that done. I'm gonna go watch a football game or I'm gonna go spend the rest of my life on myself. It's impossible. And the reason why I wanna say that today is for each one of us, I don't want you to miss out. So many people go their entire lives thinking that they have experienced and received this love and they haven't. That's never really sunken into their hearts, into their minds, that the love of Christ, the unconditional love of God is available just at one drop of the hat to save you, not just from eternal hell, but to save you from your sin and to save you from yourself right now and today. I wanna read one last scripture I'm over three minutes, so I'll read it really fast. But it's Hebrews 10, 26. 
I want to read this because the love of God is so powerful and is so good. And there's nothing we can do to deserve it. All we have to do is surrender. But at the same time, ignoring the love of God and treating the love of God as if it's just kind of whatever is a very, very serious thing. And each one of us, I'm assuming most of us have heard this before, but I know today everyone here is without excuse. And we are going to have to stand before God and answer to him, what did we do with the love that he poured out to us from Jesus Christ? Hebrews 10.26 says, For if we, willfully, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jesus fell into the hands of the living God for you. And he did it for me so that we could experience life with total peace, with total confidence that I know I'm going to heaven, not by my works, not by things I've done, but solely by the grace of God. But the question is, is has that love changed you? If that love hasn't changed you, I would be concerned. I would be worried if you've really experienced, encountered the love of Christ that's demonstrated on the cross. Because I'm telling you, every step of the way on Calvary, he was thinking about you. He was thinking about us and what it meant to reconcile people who were sinners, didn't deserve it, to reconcile them to a living and to a breathing relationship with Jesus Christ. Now I'll close with this. It's a real quick story. If I would have said I was late, and I've probably used this before, so sorry if you've heard this joke before, but if I was late today to preach, which I almost was because Stone was losing a little bit, but if I was late today to preach and I said, hey guys, I'm sorry I was late. I was driving from my house just right down the street or highway over here and my, my tire went flat and I was trying to change my tire on the side of the highway and a loose bolt kind of went out into the middle of the street and I went to go get it, and when I looked up, there was this huge Mack truck. I mean, this thing was huge, and it ran me over. And I just was a little bit late because I just got ran over by that truck. But I'm glad I'm here now. I'm ready to preach. What would you guys say? Would anybody believe me? I just got ran over by a truck? No way, right? Because you can't get hit by something like a Mack truck and not be changed. Just be the same, right? We can't be hit. We can't experience. We can't have a revelation of this type of love. Jesus Christ willing to die and go through what he went through for you and for I and to be hit by that and just think, whoa, pass potato chips. Let's go watch a movie and move on with our lives. It, it doesn't work that way. God is much bigger and more powerful than a Mack truck or anything else that we can be hit by in this life. So I just want to encourage you, if this has been a season of maybe spiritual dryness or discouragement. You've always wanted to follow God, but there's never been that real change in your life. Um, it's not because you're not trying hard enough. It's probably because you're trying too hard. It's probably because there needs to be a surrender to really realize the love and the unconditional grace that God has for your life and to receive that 
um, in repentance. And so we're gonna um, have communion. I'm gonna invite Pastor John up here. And um, yeah, just, I, I wanna pray for us um, as he's coming up. And if you are felt led, um, there's gonna be time. There's gonna be a, a video playing, but a time to contemplate um, where we are at in really receiving um, the gift of Christ. So Father God, we just thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we thank you for your unconditional love and your sovereign plan before the foundation of the world to save us um, and to make us like you. Lord, not just to leave us on this earth, but to make us the very righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. And I just know that's the greatest gift in the world. And I know that I fall short in understanding that. Um, I fall short in receiving your love, Lord. But I pray um, that through your word, through the body of Christ, through your Holy Spirit, God, that you could bring me and bring our church um, to a deeper revelation of these truths. God, we wouldn't be satisfied just knowing the story, God, but you would birth these things in us um, like, a, like a spiritual baby, Lord, to really give life to something um, that can change our lives and change the world around us, Lord. So we just thank you for all that you're doing and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.